Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, there's water in the basement and the pilot light is out. It's Ocean's 12. 
Yeah. I want my money back. The money that your friend stole from me. $160 million with interest. I'm not the only person in the world looking for Ocean's Eleven. job. We need a high-paying job. Well, now we're too hot to work anywhere in this country. Look, it's not my nature to be mysterious, but I can't talk about it, and I can't talk about why. Ooh. I'd really like to play a, a more central role this time around. Okay, I don't even understand what happened in there. What did I say? Next time I see you, I'm arresting you. Andy... I came to Ocean's Eleven last week, if you remember, with a bit of an emotional uh, set of baggage. You were rather attached. I was attached. I don't have the same baggage to this movie. <laughs> so we're free. I you feel you should feel free to that you can get away with this show with me without being accosted uh, at any point. Okay. I worry Wait. a little bit that you may have some baggage. You think to I bring might cost you? I think you might. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah um where do you where do you stand on this movie um i i have fun with this movie i like it more than oceans 11 still do after rewatching them both um not a ton uh in fact on on uh, well we'll find out later how far apart they are in flick chart but they're relatively close to each other they um it's but i i what i like about it is it feels fresh like the first film I enjoyed some of the stuff going on. I liked it more this time because I really felt that connection to Tess and that kind of that storyline with Danny, um, even though I didn't feel it was as developed as it should have been. Um, in this film, what I really just latched onto is uh, is it felt like I didn't really know where I was going, and that was exciting. The first film, it always felt like I knew where I was going, and you know, it, it, everything felt expected, and it felt like they were having fun with it, but everything was just expected and um sure there were twists and surprises and stuff but um in this film uh the twists and surprises were like real twists and surprises like i just you know all of a sudden there's this night fox character and then all of a sudden there's all these you know different things that keep happening it really kind of kept pushing into different directions that i never saw coming and i ended up really enjoying it and i i think i liked it a little less actually uh, than I did the first time I watched it, but I still enjoy it and think it's a clever, um, albeit very different entry into the uh, franchise. So tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, where, <laughs> where you say creative uh, and clever, I say sloppy and disjointed. I have all the same sort of emotional attachment to the characters. I still really like the the crew and and i'm i'm attached to them i find the execution of the story super sloppy and i i don't think it commits strongly enough in any particular direction uh, you know we we meet isabel in the very begin opening uh, scene and i love it i love it so much i love that setup it's a setup on so many different levels that we have this setup between rusty and a relationship that we we discover hey you know what i get the feeling this is going to be rusty's story this time Instead of Danny's just out of prison trying to get his romance uh, back, uh, this is going to be Rusty. We're going to learn a little bit about Rusty's background. I love that. And then we don't see Isabel again for like 30 minutes uh, when, in fact, this is a lot of her story. 
I find it is it's so disjointed and so noncommittal to these significant characters that I'm just never sure uh, exactly what the movie wants me to fall in love with. And I hate that. I hate feeling like that, that it's it's Rusty's story. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. It's also uh, Isabel is is a story. She's in it. She's going to be important. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's a high story and it's a competition between two burglars. And we have that whole angle, which comes in right in the middle. I find it's chaos. It is narrative chaos. Now, the movie movie floats for me because I really love how Soderbergh execute his, executes his film. I love him behind the camera. I love the way it's cut together. Um, and and I just enjoy watching it. But uh, but more as just sort of a work of charismatic art than of, of a narrative that I find I can invest in. So you feel about like this as I do as the first one. So that's good. Which I find so crazy. <laughs> well, I, I think it's funny. So crazy. I, I think it's really funny that you say all of that about uh, the about this one as far as Isabel and all this sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's the same issue in the first film with Tess. And, you know, but it didn't seem to be as much of a problem for no, you. No, no, so. no. It is. It's really not. It's really not. And I'll tell you why. Tess was set up as the love interest, and we have a certain expectation of what the love interest is capable of doing. And I think they, while I walked out of that movie feeling like she was underused because I feel strongly, a strong affinity to Julia Roberts, I also recognize she's the love interest and she is secondary to the primary story. In this movie, they introduced Catherine Zeta-Jones as more than a love interest, right? She is a a, a detective. She is solving crimes. She has spent a career finding thieves. And oh my God, her dad is the huge spoiler. Uh, it, all of that is roped into this on top of her being set up as the former love interest or as the love interest for Rusty. And that is too much baggage for the narrative of this story to to maintain. There's just too much going on. I wanted her story our deep scene dive tonight, which we're going to talk about, should have come 15 minutes into the movie and should have anchored the film. That should have been the, the, the pivotal moment, and we should be anchored around her if this is her story. And it, it just wasn't. Well, I mean, I, I can't argue with that element of it. But at the same time, I, I am going to argue in your defense of the first film, as I was just saying, because that story, it's such a weak film. If all it is is, OK, let's go steal this money. Oh, hey, we stole the money. That's what that movie is. And what a bore. Let me just tell you, it's so flat. There's nothing happening. There's no character arcs. There's nothing to that film. The only saving grace in that film is the fact that Tess actually ends up having a character arc. And she's the one who ends up changing over the course of the film because... Danny guides her change. And that is the only redeeming feature about that film. That's the only reason I'd probably go watch it again. It is a redeeming feature in the film. It is it is a great part. We are in violent agreement there. Well, yeah, but it's just unfortunate that the whole film is it's I mean, really, what is there to that film other than let's go rob this casino? Hey, we robbed a casino in a clever and charismatic way. It was entertaining to watch that. Yeah, but there's there's no character change. There's no character growth. There's nothing happening in the movie. That is my biggest problem with it. And I, I, I know that people love it because it is so light and fun and fresh and zesty. But this one actually has <laughs> more things happening in it. And that makes it a little more fun and exciting. And yes, I, I agree. It has problems with Catherine J Zeta Jones character throughout. And if she is supposed to be such a key character, 
it's a problem. But I feel like this movie actually is doing more things with a story that actually makes for a story where I'm like, hey, I don't know where this story is going. And that to me is exciting. Whereas the first film was like, well, they're going to go rob the casinos. Hey, they did it. Boring. Not at all. No, you're nuts. You're clearly you're. Have you have you changed your meds? <laughs> something something is wrong. Look, I I, I totally. I mean, I, I we we agreed to disagree last week, but this week you're going to start bringing up change characters. Catherine Zeta Jones. I assume she's the one you see as as a character who changes in this film. Sure. I think her change is nuts. It is totally delusional. I, it is a, it's whiplash. It is complete whiplash, her character. It is unearned whiplash when she, uh, she falls back in love with, uh, uh, with Rusty and meets her father at the end with this weird setup that uh, apparently we were supposed to really be interested in. I cared nothing for it. Uh, and then she shows up at the big party at the end. I felt like that was whiplash. I, and I'm not saying it's not. Again, I'm not saying this film doesn't have problems. But I, what my problem is, is people who praise the first film and don't find any of the similar problems with uh, with that film that they do with this film. Because that film has just as many problems. So if you're telling me that this film is, is not problematic, or, or if you're telling me the first film is not problematic and this film is problematic, then you're delusional because you're not seeing... <laughs> The, what is going on in the first film? I feel like this we saw film completely is problematic. I completely agree <laughs> that this film is full of problems, but I still find it at least doing something more unique than the first film did. I, I think where I want to come down on this is you are right on all of those points, and that is a central part of why I find this movie uh, so much more troublesome to watch because it is trying so many unique things and wonderful things and going in wonderful different directions that it doesn't hold together as a sing as a unit and that is the piece that i find super distracting uh, what so, i what i think is funny is that uh it, trust me i completely understand that i'm in the minority of this movie i know that everybody loves the first movie and the third movie and this is the one that is like the the dip that that nobody everybody Everybody suffers through when they have to go from 11 to 13. But, you know, for me, I'm just going to I'm one of those the those uh, vocal few who feels that, you know, at least there's something unique here. And I don't don't worry. I, I completely get it. And yes, that's where we are. <laughs> you know, here's a here's a thing. Here's a thing that I find interesting. One of the complaints that that I feel like we've heard and some in, in our own discord channel was that building a team. The, the trouble that people have with the building a team sequence in this movie. And I will tell you that building a team in this movie is not something I have a problem with. Does that surprise you? No. <laughs> Good, we're off the I, races. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I, I, I have such a... Yeah, I, I never know what people are going to have problems with this with this one because anytime yeah. I talk to people, it's always something different. So I guess I'll, this is I, this is yeah. one that I really like because it is replaced. Like usually we have in the, these heist movies, it's sort of table stakes that you're going to have building the team. We talked about building the team before, and and here we are building the team. It's different here, and I think it's different in a really smart way. It's different because it's not these guys pulling together a team that we already know exists. In fact, the team is all spread all over the place. They're getting a manicure. They're, they're they're doing their own thing. The team is accounted for by Terry Benedict going from person to person and telling them that they're on the hook for all the money that they stole, and uh, and him discovering them in all of these fantastic places. I really like that. 
I really like the way that plays out, and I think it reintroduces us to all these characters in a very smart and charismatic way. And in fact, I actually like them coming together for the first time and talking about all the money that they owe. I think that is a funny conversation, and it's a it's a fun and funny way for us to get to know them again. Well, and, you know, I know there's been some complaint about the fact that, you know, they say Ocean's Eleven and that whole thing, and they're talking about it as Ocean's Eleven. And it is a little weird, but I think it makes for a really funny conversation. <laughs> like, I really like it when they're all getting all upset about, oh, it's Danny's. Well, where did it you know become your thing? You know, it, right, uh, it made right. me laugh quite a bit. And Linus, who comes to the defense of, of, you know, Danny and ends up being such a punching bag for the duration of the film. Uh, which, as a character bit, I think is actually really funny, especially you know, because he was coming off of the Bourne movies here, where he's he just is so like with it and on top of everything, and uh, even in his search for identity, and for he, and for this film to have him be such a, a state of chaos, I think is really great. It's very he's a strange character. I feel like his character is the one that took the the um, the biggest turn from the previous film. Um, in the way that they were writing him and, and what they were kind of doing with his character. And it, it went down a road that I was like, I don't know who this guy is. It's, it's such a strange character because he's got, I know that he was like the new guy in the first film and they bring him on because, you know, it, I can't remember, it was recommended from his father or they knew his father or somehow they got connected with him. So there's that whole backstory of his, he's from a, a family of thieves and here he is hired into this group. But then in this one, we've got this strange thing with Linus where he gets up uh, kind of offended when they're using the word freaky, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of creates this whole like weird thing about him. And it's like, what, you know, I, I could never quite figure out what was going on with him in his mind as far as like the, the way that he was thinking about things. And that really kind of continues into the next one, too. So it's it's a strange development that I don't know how fond of I am. Well, let me ask you him. because this this struck my mind. I'm interested in your interested in your opinion on this. Do you think that this sort of um, uh, the the sort of character nonsense that we get from Linus here, which I find funny, but I also think is a little bit out of place given the first movie, would this kind of stuff have been more appropriate in the first movie? It would have been fine in this one if they had some of it in the first movie. And I think that's the thing right. is like they, they changed this element of his character and all of a sudden he's kind of like getting offended about strange little things like that. And it's kind of the, become a new part of his character that seemed strange to me. Well, and then we get to, for example, the uh, uh, what was it? The Lost in Translation gag with Rusty yeah. and Danny and Matsui. And I... I thought that was just straight up silliness, and I felt like it was setting up Linus for uh, to become a foil, like a, a foil and a, um, you know, the buffoon, not just the innocent. Uh, and uh, so I was a little frustrated by that well, sort of stuff. Well, they do that to him in the first movie, too. Yeah, but it's not quite so, um, I don't know. Well, because Clooney, they, they, they trick him into, you know, thinking that, that Rusty hires Li or has Linus following Danny. Only to reveal that they knew all along and it was part of the whole thing when Danny pops up on top of the elevator. Yes, I, I know. I, I know. And and I still feel like this, like in front of Matsui, actively pranking him in a scene that is otherwise not necessary, uh, I, yeah. I found frustrating. Like they're doing it only to poison our opinion of Linus. You know, I, and I think this is a consistent element across the board with all of these um, recent films is that they they have these scenes written into the film where there will be these conversations that are 
kind of just there just to be there and just to just have fun. I, you know, I, I talked about some of those scenes in the last movie that just feel like they're written. And that I think is very consistent here also, where there are scenes like that that just feels like, oh, this will be fun. Let's write this scene. And they write it and it just it feels it never stops feeling written. Yeah, well, and we have the exact same scene that we talked about in the last movie, right? Where in, And I didn't have a problem with it in the last movie because it was fun and charismatic and original. And in this movie, I have a big problem with it. It's the exact same scene with Danny and Rusty. This time, Rusty's doing it. And uh, I I didn't like it. I did not like it. It was played. Yeah, I mean, they, they struggled with with a lot of those elements in, in the franchise, I think. It's just... It, I mean, they're trying to make it fun and light, and I, I think sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't. And I, I would say that that's pretty consistent uh, for all of them. <laughs> uh, I, I do. There are some other things I do love, though. Um, I love the beeping. The bleeping, sorry, uh, the the bleeping, and when we see Basher for the first time, and he's he's hanging out with uh, uh, with his as his engineer, he's hanging out with Jared Harris, who is fa- what a fantastic little cameo for Jared Harris fans. Uh, I thought that was great, and they keep having the <laughs> they keep having the I guess it's a phone ringing, uh, but at just the right place for them to swear, and I thought that was a, a super funny gag. Well, and it was just funny because they're talking about like having to bleep their song yeah. or whatever, yeah. and here they are getting bleeped. So it it played pretty well. I mean, a lot of fun little cameos, like Jared Harris is there. Topher Grace returned in his little bit here, which was funny. I love him saying, "Oh, I totally phoned in that Dennis Quaid movie." You know, just <laughs> it's I mean, so good. They have they have uh, a great use of 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 the um, cameos when they when they get the opportunity. The Malloy twins are fantastic. They're back with, uh, you know, Affleck and James or and uh, Khan. Uh, and uh, they they have their little guessing of the age bit, which is super funny and, and charming again. Um, it you know, some of these these little character elements that we get between the main crew are really great. And then we have these things. <sighs> the central gag at the, toward the end of the movie is they're trying to steal this egg and some of the guys have been arrested so they're they're split up we only have 3 of them left and so they need some help and they call Julia Roberts to play or they call Tess I should say to impersonate Julia Roberts uh and get her into the museum so they can steal the egg and there she sees uh Bruce Willis sees her Bruce Willis is also playing himself and uh, shenanigans ensue, I guess. It's. I think it's actually kind of funny. It's kind of a clever way to kind of play that scene. But I still have issues with it. You know, it's 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 fun. It's it's what I liked about it is it felt like kind of um, the sort of thing that Steven Soderbergh would do in his indie projects. It felt like a really crazy indie idea that they were throwing into this mega uh, budget film. Um, and, you know, I, it didn't completely work, but at the same time, at least I felt like they were doing something that I hadn't seen before. And it's funny hearing them talk about it um, behind the scenes. This was like a major issue with the studio and everybody was like concerned about, is this going to affect Julie Roberts as far as how people perceive her? And like they had to do all these back and forth like conversations to determine if this was something that would um would freak people out too much (laughs) so i don't i don't see that i mean did you find yourself freaked out 
No, but I, I just, I, the way that studio heads think sometimes, it just boggles my mind. It's like, these are the conversations they have. Like, is this going to ruin Julie Roberts' bankability? You know, it's, it's just crazy. It's funny how people think. Yeah, yeah, it is. But you know what's interesting? I actually had zero problem with the Julia Roberts idea. I think it actually works really well. And 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 in in fact, I I think it's a gag that that could have been funny until they sucked all of the the oxygen of believability, all of the credibility, the credulity out of the sequence by introducing Bruce Willis. That is where the whole gag fails because I have absolutely no shred of belief that Bruce Willis would see his close friend Julia Roberts being impersonated and not get and not, you know, blurt out that's not her from the very beginning, that he would need to see her, which hand she's writing with to lock that down is insanity. It's insanity. And as I understand it from the, the behind the scenes stuff, it was Julia Roberts idea that, oh, she should, you know, Tess should run into somebody uh, in the museum. Wouldn't that be funny? And I happen to know Bruce and he's here. We should we should do this with Bruce. That would be great. It'd be a great thing. It doesn't work for the movie, in in my opinion. It's where the entire gag breaks. Yeah, I, I think that that is a problem with it. Um, I it's it is a fun idea. And I love that Bruce Willis is in this movie because he was originally going to be Danny Ocean in the last movie. And yeah. I, it's fun seeing him pop up here. Um, and the fact that, you know, he and Julia know each other, their kids know each other. Like, I love how all of that plays out. Um, but yes, it does end up creating kind of a, a structural problem when he uh, does that. And I also always have an issue with Saul all of a sudden popping up because it's like he had been gone for so long. And it's like this is he knew he was supposed to show up um, and like play this role. And it just seemed so you know convenient that he, he appeared right at that particular moment. And and you know what's interesting? We talk about fan service a lot, and and I think this was this is probably more star service than fan service. But if anything, because we had Bruce Willis and Julie Roberts playing themselves in the player, like this feels like a throwback that they wanted to do together for you know for for those sort of kind of his, historical reasons. And I and, and that's another reason I look at it just kind of. Well, that's a stretch I never thought of. <laughs> <laughs> really. <laughs> nope, never. Uh, it's the first thing I thought. I was like, "Oh, here we go." Oh, that's funny. Is, this is something they, they they have to have thought of that. Yeah, well, uh, it's possible. Anyhow. So it's it, it's funny though because okay, so I'm assuming you know we haven't talked really much about the titles as far as this being Ocean's Twelve, meaning hey, there's a one. It's a sequel because the number went up one, and two, there's an extra person in the group, right? Yeah. And I'm assuming that that Julia Roberts is that extra person because now she's helping them with their heist. Okay. Does that make sense? Is there somebody else who would be the 12? <laughs> you know, you know what's funny? I it it makes sense to me. It's it it makes sense to me. I am not one of those that has ever had a problem with the titles because I just haven't given it much thought. Like this it felt like Ocean's 12 not because of the number of people but because it's the movie after 11. Like it, Ocean's 11 was cute, Ocean's 12 was uh, I've just never counted. Well, I think that they consistently have been trying to add an extra person on every time because then, then when we go to Ocean's 8, it's eight people. Like it's it's consistently something having to do with the number of people involved. And Okay, and so it who is it's a, the 11 and then Julia Roberts is the extra so she person would be involved 12. in the heist. Okay. That's that's right. my theory. Now, what's funny though is that you know, okay, so Saul doesn't come. So technically we're already down one. So it's 10. 
Um, Frank gets arrested right away. So we're at nine. Yeah. Yen gets locked in a bag and shipped off. And then everybody gets arrested. <laughs> so it's it's so funny. And it's I, really you know, Ocean's it. it's, three. Yeah, it's or like three Ocean's and a half. three plus one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so it's funny how it it because you never actually have all twelve people involved in one heist at the same time. So right, right. Um, but it, it's funny. I mean, and you know, this goes, I think, to the complexities of writing a script in the world of Hollywood, where you have all of these stars who are all commanding attention and being pulled in many different directions, and you have twelve of them plus you know plus. Uh, Andy Garcia, plus, uh, you know, all of the other people that are involved in that uh, on the on the fringes, like, you have like all of these people. And what happens is all of a sudden, you know, as they're trying to build these schedules, somebody like Julia Roberts ends up pregnant, she's got she's having twins. So they have to rework the script to accommodate that. Uh, Bernie Mac all of a sudden has another job that he has to go do. So they have to re, so they have to write him into jail so they can kind of free up his schedule for a big chunk of time. Same thing with Carl Reiner, they had to write him out for a long time. So he didn't pop up until the very end. And it's one of these things that, I, you know, I can't remember if it happens in 13 or not, but it's something that is a consistent element that I think is going to make it harder and harder as they as they build these projects with huge casts like this is because they're going to have to keep reworking the script. And when they do that, that may affect the quality of what they're actually uh, trying to do. Well, it, it reminds me of the chaos that they went through to make the last season of Arrested Development for that very same reason, right? They shot everything out of oh, crazy yeah. order, right? It was just it, it was just chaos. And where, and, and where they focused each episode on a person as opposed yes. to the group, right? Yeah. Based on schedule, not narrative, right? Which which I think it, it caused the the you know the season to suffer and i think this movie suffers but i want to i want to get to the script because i feel like there's there there's room for for uh you know challenge in in once again taking a script that was not written as an oceans movie and adapting it to become an oceans movie uh and um you know trying to shoehorn all these guys into it yeah the the original script was honor among thieves um by nolfi um, the uh, George Nolfi, who um, stayed on to kind of adapt it into this world. Um, it was a script that had been optioned, and um, it was a script about, uh, you know, a, a thief, like a, a master thief who um, is challenged by uh, another master thief who says that uh, that he's the best, and this guy has to, you know, they, they set up this competition to prove who's really the better master thief. And that kind of becomes that was kind of the crux of his story. And and so they they took that concept and morphed it into the Night Fox element of this one and moved it over to Europe. And and they did a lot with it. And, you know, that's, I think, uh, you know, why this film ends up feeling so different um, than uh, than Ocean's Eleven, because they kind of pulled it from that. And that happens a number of times. We talked about that, I think, last with uh, I want to say Die Hard 2. Yeah where it was a totally different story. Right. And, um, and, and it can work and sometimes, uh, the films can, uh, suffer. What I like about it is it gives that film a, a fresh feeling where it doesn't feel like the same story retreaded. Um, and th- I think that is kind of a, a, an important element. Um, however, it's, it can be hard to kind of keep a, a consistent tone that really feels like it's connecting with the first one. And I feel like for the most part, they, they have the tone right here, yes. but I do still feel it, it creates some issues. 
I, I think the problem that they, they had, uh, Andy, is that they tried to to shoehorn this Terry Benedict angle into it. Right. I mean, they they I, I think they tread too far from the honor among thieves. Had they gotten rid of all of that nonsense about I want my money back, even though I just got my money from the insurance, they could have cut a half hour from the movie or embellished the Night Fox angle in a way that is ultimately really satisfying and doesn't feel like, you know, one story is getting short shrift. Uh, because I actually I love Cassell and and I think he's a he's a fantastic talent and I I really would have loved to have seen more of him and, and really to to sort of flex their muscles around this the the competition uh, it could have been much more entertaining and funny if we didn't have so much of the baggage from Ocean's Eleven that that they felt like they had to to shake loose. Well, and I don't mind that. Like, I, I don't mind all the Terry Benedict stuff. I think it's kind of fun. And um, I love how it uh, that and all of this ends up kind of tying into 13, too. Um, but here's a question for you relating to the story, just to, uh, you know, and uh, again, it's a very convoluted story. But okay, so is the whole thing of them getting uh, getting outed to Terry Benedict uh, by the Night Fox, um, all part of their plan, right? And that is a that you're right because we haven't we haven't talked through sort of all of the heist plans yet. But you're right because when they, I'm going to say this wrong, I feel like, but at the very end when they're going through the, you know, explain how this how this all came came to be if it weren't if it weren't for you lousy kids the their plan had to start it feels like a week before the movie started (laughs) yeah it's well it's confusing because because lamarck uh you know albert finney who's who's uh we find out is uh um uh uh, what's her name's father yeah my blanking on her name right uh jones uh, right um he's the dad and so the whole thing kicks off because they are sitting around chatting. Um, this is the scene we talked about um, uh, how um, how the producer of the film um, ended up having all these cameos. And this is his uh, chance right here where uh, Jerry Weintraub, he's the, having his cameo here. He's sitting on the boat telling Lamarck about this amazing heist and how these guys um, are the best uh, master thieves in the world. And Lamarck doesn't say no, no. Um, and that's what sets uh, Tallur off, and right. uh, you know. So, uh, and then, and so he tips off uh, Benedict, and the whole thing kind of uh, snowballs from there. So, um, but, but I don't do, think that when does conversation Danny and Rusty get get involved? Right, because I don't think that conversation was faked. Like, if if to get Cassell to go spill the beans to Benedict. So my hunch is that. Uh, all of that happened outside of the story and that then when when Benedict comes to them saying, I want my money, I think that's when they went and talked to Le- Lamarck and found all of this out, maybe? Does that make oh, sense? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so then with the help of Lamarck, um, they set all of these plans in place uh, and they knew by, I guess by that point, they must have known that Isabel was somehow involved i don't know and then they determined they came up with this whole plan to you know get the money um from uh to lure by doing this whole thing to to pay off benedict so they still won and get to lure or i mean lamarck reunited with his daughter that means that the real heist was done well before the 
the heist that we see them doing all the planning for and what they're planning for. And this is what Soderbergh does really quite well in these movies is leave out just the right bits of dialogue that would have happened that would have set us off or, or let us understand exactly what where we were on the timeline, that what we get is planning for the ruse. And we don't know we're in a ruse. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and that's something that I think is very consistent in these films where we as the audience see, like, uh, we see Tulur spying on them, but yeah. we don't realize that they are kind of also, they're completely aware of it. And the whole yeah. thing is that is a fantastic sting, right? I mean, it's just like the sting. Yeah. The yeah, whole exactly. thing is just this, this big thing that they're doing. So, right, right. And, and you realize, like, in the sequence between Basher and, and Scott Kahn and, um, you know, Linus, um, they're they're upset because all the guys have been arrested. But they're when you watch it, knowing what they're upset about, uh, it it changes the the tone of the movie. And either, and I, I think this is one of the areas of central areas of complaint. Either you're frustrated that you've been tricked, and it no longer has any of the sort of narrative weight. Uh, that helps you care about what they're doing because you know it doesn't really mean anything. They already have the egg, uh, or you, you really like it because they, um, you know, because it's it's such a complex uh, and and twisted kind of objective. And and I generally like it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I really am in for. Yeah, it is fun, but it is one of those things. And I can't remember what film we talked about recently, um, but it was one where um, you know the 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 people telling the story it's like would they act that way when they're on their own and not being watched are they still going to be acting as if they're yeah. being watched you know and it, right. you kind of fall down that rabbit hole of how how deep are these performances going that they're putting on you know i mean he brings in his mom i mean it turns into this whole hugely convoluted thing and yeah. and lucky that they're all uh, good actors who can pull it off and not not uh, you know raise suspicion in some other way because um, it gets very complicated. Well, so was the arrest real? Because you know Linus's mom comes to the rescue, and is was that a real rescue or was that plan as part of the plan all along? That was part of the plan. I thought. Well, <laughs> I don't know. See, that's that's where the, if, the if issues... it was part of the plan, then it would that conversation that Linus has with his mom would not have gone the way it did in the car. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was he was genuinely disturbed by her being there. Unless, yeah, once but, again, uh... they've already set us up that we should be suspicious of everything that Linus is involved with. Well, and that's that's a, a general struggle I end up having with this entire franchise is it basically puts me on guard where everything that happens I'm suspicious of. Like there's here's a perfect example. In this film, you have a scene where Isabel is in her car and stuck in traffic in Rome or wherever she is at this point in the film. And the camera looks behind the car and you see a motorcyclist kind of cutting through traffic and the motorcyclist comes right up next to her car window and stops next to her and stares through the window at her i'm so suspicious i'm like who is this person it's, it's vincent be one cassell of the guys. it's Talur. that was Talur. oh it's Talur. how do yeah. you know that 100 percent. because i recognize you recognize his chin it's totally yeah, Talur. it's how do you recognize his chin he's completely covered in a mask he's no, got he's, his helmet no, on. He's, he's not let me i'm going back to the scene and, right now and then he stops right next to her and then bikes off only to reveal the egg poster behind her. And that was really the only reason that that shot's in there is for her to make the connection with the egg. 
It's not a character. I tell you, it is not a character in the film. It's some random motorbike guy that I become suspicious of because of the <laughs> because of the nature of these films. I don't buy anything that's happening in the movies because I think that everything is a con. I totally hear you. I, I hear your suspicion. I really do. But I and I think it's troublesome either way. If I'm right and it's to lure, then what the hell is the point of him coming and looking at her through the window? Who? Well, can, maybe, why is he there? If it's and, just a random guy then it is a waste of a scene uh, yeah well it's 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 just to get her to see the egg but and and maybe it wasn't the best example if it was uh, if it was uh, to lure because uh, you know it's like the point is these films the nature of the con movies is they are designed to uh, trick you and in a good con movie, you're not gonna you're gonna you're gonna think you're paying attention to a con, but in reality, there's another thing that's happening, and that was the actual con, and and you kind of missed it because you were it's a great good magician's trick where you're watching the left hand, but really yeah, the right, right hand was the thing doing the trick, and but it gets to a point where there's so many hands up in the air with all of these films that you start going, oh, it's all a con. I'm not buying anything. Everything is something, yeah, and it, it's it's a frustrating element of con films in general and i think these films you know there are so many cons going on because we keep seeing con after con after con that it is hard to buy into anything that happens and we're certainly going to see that in 13 and we're certainly going to see that in eight. Oh yeah well and the fact that the cons are coming from both sides it's not just you know that the fact that the night fox is conning oceans 11 or you know i think so or that oceans 11 uh is ends up conning the night fox to pay off benedict but isabel is conning everybody too she's faking signatures right she's she's conning uh she's conning oceans 11 stealing the phone she's i mean it's left and right and uh and and in the end Rusty is doing the same thing that Danny did in the last movie. He's conning uh, Ocean's Eleven and conning Isabel to win her back. And the audience, yeah. Yeah. So everybody like every, is conned. Yeah. yeah. It's all a big Lamarck con by the time we it's get to the It's a big Lamarck con, right. Uh, so and, it's, it's, and it's a Linus con. Everybody's conning Linus so that he can feel really good about himself. Well, his mom sure was. <laughs> this whole movie is Lamarck conning everybody, right? It starts at the very beginning and it ends with him convincing, I guess, himself and everybody else that, in fact, he is the greatest thief of all time. You're right. Which I think the Ocean Ocean's team would agree with, but uh, Talur may not. Well, maybe at the end he would. He was pretty upset. Yeah. I bet he was pretty upset at Lamarck. But the whole, the whole, then, then it gets back to, if you look at the film in that light, was it successful at what it was trying to do? And I say it's actually even worse. Why is it worse? Because it's less committal to that particular. It, it gives us uh, it, it doesn't set up Lamarck well enough throughout the film. It is so focused on the capers at hand, whatever's on screen uh, to, to actually keep us keep front of mind, at least back of mind, that there is this sort of alter kind of narrative. Uh, but, you know, it's the nature of these stories where you yeah. know, you're getting conned. And I think by the time you get to the end, um, you see the con and, and, you know, you're just like, ah, OK. And, and I think that's kind of the nature of the story where, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's 
as much a problem as you're making it, but I, I don't think it's as clean as it. it <laughs> oh, believe be. me, Nolfi made it the problem, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but uh, that's that I think is is part of the challenge. And, uh, you know, I think the movie had a problem because people walked in thinking that this was going to be a George Clooney-led movie like Ocean, Ocean's Eleven was, and it's not. And it's I, I think that is, in fact, one of the things that's really solid about the movie, that it keeps keeps us guessing in terms of who's the center of importance in this film. And I think scene to scene, sequence to sequence, it holds together, uh, you know, on the strength of the characters and performances very well. I enjoy it. I enjoy, I still deeply enjoy watching these people on screen, so. Yeah, right. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. All right, here we go. The scene is uh, right around 38 minutes, and the premise is this. Isabel, she is arriving at the crime scene in Amsterdam. It flashes, uh, her experience flashes back to Isabel and Rusty falling in love. Uh, Inside of that flashback, uh, it, it goes to Rusty being chased and her seeing the police chasing Rusty. Uh, there is an enormous amount of flashing back, and I think there's some side flashing uh, where we get to see Benedict getting the call from uh, Tulur, actually outing Ocean's Eleven, telling him where they are. Uh, it, it is uh, There's a lot of flashing around uh, in this sequence. Why is this our deep scene dive? I think this is such a, a fun scene and just shows the smarts of Isabel as a detective that really gives her kind of center stage of, of like piecing this whole thing together of how, you know, she, she pieces together right away that, um, you know, she, she realizes there was a crossbow bolt in the wall and she figures out how they did it. And that reminds her of Rusty and how she had told him about this heist where they raise the building and so she figures that whole thing out but then and and she sees it and i love it where she flashes back and sees the basically the whole thing playing out which of course you know is is really how it played out it's not like her imagination of it but it's it's kind of fun to see it flashing back in her mind and then in in there and then she has this whole thing with uh with uh the the night fox and how he he conned them and that is kind of that i guess you'd call it a side flashback uh, it's it's so fun. It's just the way that we're jumping around from moment to moment, all within this space of this scene of Isabel examining this crime scene and piecing it all together and realizing the Night Fox was involved and Matsui was involved. And I, it, it's, it makes for fascinating storytelling. And I love that uh, Soderbergh has such a, a an assured hand that makes scenes like this really work and just really just feel easy to get. Oh God, absolutely. And and so like I say with great affection, this scene is peak Soderbergh in this movie, right? I mean, the way he is able to play with time and take such liberties with time and still make it effective, the way he is able to play with age and hairstyles, right? The way that he's able to make those flashbacks actually make sense, uh, based on, on just how these characters look and how they, how affectionate they are for one another. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, he is here as Peter Andrews behind the camera. I, I, I love the way he holds the camera. He, he's a, this is a great handheld guy like you see watch the behind the scenes with him uh with the camera on his shoulder it's hard to do and for him to direct and shoot uh is uh, is i think a real testament to how talented he is uh and and this sequence really showcases uh so much of that 
Well, and he loves playing with the techniques. You know, we talked about kind of the freeze frames and the and the crash zooms last Absolutely. time. Absolutely. But he plays with these even more here. And and it's it's just fun to have all of those tools at use in a way where it doesn't feel like dated. Like there was a period where his zooms were really just dated. And I think he's found a way to do it very effectively. Like Kubrick is, is somebody else who uses his zooms very effectively. And uh, and I love that he continues to uh, experiment with all of that. You know, uh, the other thing that he does here, which I, I find really effective and efficient, is he tells the tale of their romance, I think, in like a four shot montage of them together as a couple. Right. There's them eating ice cream, sitting on a bench. There's them, uh, I think, uh, in a museum, maybe sitting together close. And, and so uh, and there's, there's that them gorgeous dancing. dance scene. God, yeah. that- dance scene is fantastic where it's so deeply red and they are isolated under a yellow light i mean it's just really beautiful um and and the, the, you know in that little sequence and then the hard cut back to her looking wistfully at the safe you know we get a sense of just how close she is and that's why i, I you know i don't know maybe this scene is such a testament to why i just wanted it earlier i wanted more of this part of the story and um and I felt like this was the this was the thing that uh, that that could have really set the movie apart from the last one. David Holmes, I think uh, he's back for the music and does yeah. such a great job with the score here. He gives a nice European flair that has this great sixties seventies European vibe. The music when they're they're romancing each other is just such amazing score here. Uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, the the song selection throughout is fantastic too. But yeah, I mean, the score is just great. And then I love the little bit of score that we uh, kind of discovered deep under uh, her beginning her investigation. Oh, it's so fantastic. I had never listened to it with headphones on and I've, I've, I turned it up as we were preparing for the show and here as she is, she's kneeling. First of all, I should say she's kneeling and looking at a boot print, which is a nice callback to the opening sequence. So that was great. And then he starts, uh, she starts going up the stairs. And if you listen very closely, you can hear this. The bass line is actually replaced by this sort of men's bass chorus. And it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. And it's, it's, so cool uh it's just such fantastic texture to add the choral voice to that it was it was very very cool um can i can i ask you a thing though about the um this heist in particular um and and maybe it's something i should celebrate because of efficiency or maybe it's something that i should um i should lament because it's a distraction but the whole this whole heist they have to lift up the entire building in order to make a single uh crossbow shot correct do do you find do you find that uh uh, nonsense or do you like it or do you not care about it at all Uh, i don't get i guess i don't care about it because it's just one of those things that um i i i guess uh, people do (laughs) i don't know (laughs) when when your house is i well it's just a weird thing because and i guess i don't have enough understanding of building houses on water the the whole idea seems so strange to me anyway um you know because you don't have any water where you live (laughs) exactly what is this water thing that that you have i only get it in bottles the um no it's you know it's like it's like watching the whole um 
the final uh, fight in Casino Royale or something when they're in Venice and the houses are coming down and crashing into the water. And it's like, I just don't understand. Like, how are they building these houses in this water? I don't get it. Why would they choose to do that? Yeah, it's so strange to me. And so in Amsterdam, like, I didn't even realize that was a thing in Amsterdam. And here they are doing this whole thing with this house. And so I guess in the scheme of things, I'm like, okay, I'll buy into it in context of the story. Um, I, I don't know if I fully understood it because it's like, okay, so they had to raise his house, but if they had to raise his house, couldn't they likewise have just like repelled like 10 feet down the wall that they, of the building they were on and just shoot the crossbow bolt from that point? Like, I, you know, there were some elements to it that I, it seemed like I'm sure there were other ways to go about it, but you know, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't worry too much about it. Yeah. I mean, I just kept thinking. Somebody should have just slung themselves over the side of the building to and pretended to clean windows. Like, it, yeah, it was so overboard uh, for for me. I I'm not. I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. There are a lot more things in this movie that I have issues with, but um, that one just seemed a little bit silly. It's it's but it's just one of those weird things that it's just like okay, well that was that. Yeah. Um. But and it was a fun thing to kind of get another cameo in. You know, when um uh, I I'm going to blank on his name who. Who pops up as the uh, the uh, the homeowner, right? As Jerowyn Crab, who who's <laughs> like, you see him in one shot, and it's it's when they're talking about how much of a shut in he is, and that's yeah, it. right, right. That's his right, one that was shot it. in the film. <laughs> that's all he's got. <laughs> yeah. Well, I this this sequence I think represents some of the best of the movie, and uh, it it is I you know it's a shame it's surrounded by what it's surrounded by. Uh, for some of it but i i really i it just really resonates how good soderbergh is at what he does I, there are elements of it that i think uh work so um and and because it feels different i still i i end up walking out of this one still liking it more than i did the other one did it do any good in award season andy well like you uh most people <laughs> didn't care for this one quite as much um it did have three wins, eight other nominations, um, and three wins is, I guess, in quotes, because one of the wins was something called the Yoga Awards. I have no idea what those are. I looked online. I couldn't find it. Um, but Brad Pitt won uh, for Worst Foreign Actor, um, and it was, it was for his work this year in both this and Troy. So um, that is, uh, yeah, that's that win. Um, nothing too exciting, nothing to uh, write home about. Um, I'm going to see if I can figure out what these yoga awards are. But other than that, um, at the BET Comedy Awards, uh, Don Cheadle and Bernie Mac were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy. Um, but they both lost to Chris Rock for The Longest Yard, um, which I don't know why that surprises me, but um, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the Costume Designers Guild Awards, uh, Milena Cananero was nominated for Excellence in Contemporary Film. Um, and I will say the costumes looked great in this. I thought Catherine Zeta-Jones looked so good every single time she was on screen. You know, everything she wore, her hair, her outfits, just her, she exuded just magic and everything. And I think a lot of that went to just kind of her clothes and just how she carried herself. But anyway, the, uh, Milena lost to Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, I guess is just kind of a very kind of that quirky Wes uh, Anderson type of thing happening in that yeah. one, so... Well, I am I am glad that this movie apparently did well enough to get the sequel because I can't wait for next week. But give me some detail on the budget. 
Yeah, Soderbergh's quirky little sequel here uh, was definitely a bit more costly than its predecessor, uh, perhaps because of its foreign locations. The film came in costing $110 million, which is about $139.7 million in today's dollars. It opened December 10th, 2004, opposite Blade Trinity, where it took the number one spot, but just for a week. Uh, the movie went on to earn $125.5 million domestically and $237.5 million internationally, giving it an adjusted gross of $461 million. It leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $2.6 million, so it wasn't as successful as the first film, but still a financial success. Hallelujah. Let's rank go. it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show, or swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart, jump to this very movie, and add it to your own list so we can see how it stacks up to ours. Andy? All right. First up, we have Ocean's 12 or Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond for me. Ocean's 12 or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um, I'm going to go Munchausen, I think. But not hard. They're both very problematic. I'm telling you, if you say Oceans, I'll give it to you. I'm not going to fight you. I guess I'll go Oceans. Okay. You got it. Take it. Run with it. All right. Ocean's 12 or Princess Mononoke. Oh, Mononoke. Yeah, Mononoke. Ocean's 12 or Detroit. I'm going to say Detroit. Ocean's 12 for me. Uh, let's do it. Ready? Yep. One, One two, two, three. Paper. paper scissors. Rock. I am crushed. Ocean's 12 or The Born Legacy. Jeremy Renner's entry into the franchise. Born, I, I'm going to go with Born. Ocean's 12 one. for me. Yeah, you know, I'll give it to you. Ocean's 12 or La Vie en Rose. Oh, Ocean's 12. Hands down. Ocean's 12. Yeah. Ocean's 12 or Sophie's Choice. Ocean's 12 for me. Yeah, Ocean's 12. Ocean's 12 or King's Row? I'm say Ocean's 12. Ocean's 12. All right. Well, that lands Ocean's 12 at 226 on our chart. Does that feel okay to you? Like I said, this this film on my personal chart is 35 spots ahead of Ocean's 11. Um, there, it, It's at, uh, you know, slot 1,000 out of it, almost, I'm at 3,999. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. Very excited. I, I, I'm, I'm debating, like, what what's going to be number 4,000? Oh, my out. goodness. I know. These are, you know, sorts of things that I think about. But anyway, 35 slots ahead. It's behind Ocean's Eleven on our chart here. But I blame that on Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for me, this movie, it, it fell when I re-ranked it uh, this time around. Uh, and it fell to 441 out of 1,025, uh, which if I go by the algorithm, this should be a three-star film uh, on letterbox.com slash the next reel. You know, I, when I came into it, I was thinking it should be right around two and a half stars. I like enough of the production, and I don't like enough of the narrative that it feels like a very middling movie. I'm, I'm actually okay at three stars. Um, where does, How does it hit you? Is that three stars and a like? Yeah, I, I would even give it a like. I'm at three and a half stars uh, and alike, which is exactly what I gave Ocean's Eleven. So I, I'm I'm pretty firm on on that. I feel like it's in the right place there, and that's uh, uh, based on my ranking. That's where it should land anyway. So well, I deeply enjoyed Ocean's Eleven. This one is a disappointment only by comparison, and it I think I sound probably more antagonistic when talking to you than I would about this movie to anybody else. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, but generally, I, I just like the I, I like what he does to create this movie so much more than I like the script. I'm going to forgive an awful lot 
of of the script to well i mean here's because the i thing. do enjoy Soderberg, the ride yeah he's a master filmmaker and he knows how to make a fun film and even when it's a problematic script whether it's oceans 12 or in my case oceans 11 he still makes it a very fun ride yeah. and so i can still have fun with it even though i have problems with it absolutely uh where do we go uh from here it should be fairly predictable yeah, we're going to be uh, jumping forward three years to uh, Ocean's 13, which came out in 2007, the uh, the final of Soderbergh's trilogy. Yes, I'm very excited about this one. I- I'm very excited about it, and uh, I-, I actually haven't quite finished it. I started watching it. I only have about 20 minutes left, and I just couldn't finish it. Uh, and so I-, I can't wait to get back into it and uh, talk about it with you next week. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel, where you get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels, so just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. And you can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs the Instagram program. Ben Lott runs all things on Twitter. And, of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to this show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And, you know, I, since I'm right in the middle, and then, but you said that I was too negative, and so I should do a five star because I, I leaned negative. So <laughs> that's right. So I'll take that. I'll take that. So I went on the uh, five star uh, uh, round. And in fact, this particular review, Andy, was written by Lamarck himself. Whoa. Yeah. I've watched this movie a dozen times 10,000 equals love it. The Oceans is by far the favorite, and I think best of all of them, great movie. Now, I don't know if you noticed that there's some significant math involved in this we need to <laughs> we need to actually f- figure this out a dozen as we know is is uh 12 right 12. right and, and if you actually do the math and multiply that out he in fact lamarck has watched this movie one hundred and twenty thousand times <laughs> and and therefore loves it well that's that maybe is why he's the master thief because he's, he <laughs> used this to figure it all out go oh this is what i need to do <laughs> <laughs> perfect oh my. perfect oh my my what, what's yours you went you went so south. funny i i went with a one star by sid dithers um who you know i just thought this was uh kind of uh just a fun reference <laughs> the cannonball run of 2004 <laughs> <laughs> do you get the feeling that these movies are only strung together from the cast's pranking and joshing sessions from entertainment tonight and access hollywood Like the Cannonball Run and the abominable Charlie's Angels films, these movies look like they were far more fun to make than to actually watch. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you had me at Cannonball Run. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I saw that movie. Uh, I remember liking it. <laughs> uh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>